weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Well, a big thanks to the two Johnnies for the afternoon entertainment. It is Wednesday, October 4th. I'm Shane Dawson and you are listening to Game On. Coming up between now and 7pm, David Snade and Miguel Delaney will have their say on the imminent approval of Ireland and the UK's Euro 2028 bid. On Budget Day, uh, UEFA will formally announce that UK and Ireland will host the 2028 tournament. I think that's going to be great for football. I think it's going to be great for the country. I think it's a good thing for UK-Ireland relations and something I will discuss uh, with the Prime Minister uh, when we meet um, in Granada tomorrow. Yes. Well, we will also be rounding up all of the Champions League action in football and hear the views of Jurgen Klopp following last weekend's VAR controversy. As a, not as a manager of Liverpool so much, more as a, a football person, I think the, the only, the, the outcome should be a replay. That's how it is. Yes, he asked for that, really. In Gaelic Games, Damien Lawler will bring us up to date with all the latest inter-county management moves plus ahead of Ireland-Scotland this week. We'll hear from Irish Ford's coach Paul O'Connell. As always, if you want to have your say, text us on 51552 or tweet us at GameOn2FM. Game on on 2FM. Yes, hello there. Good evening. Great to have your company on this Wednesday evening. David Snade and Miguel Delaney are both with me. David, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Keep well? I'm all good. I'm all good. Miguel Delaney, how are you, sir? Not too bad. I was supposed to be in Newcastle now, but um, a train strike in, in the UK has prevented that. Well, listen, you know, you'll, you'll make your, you know, a, sec, a back, nice backup is chatting to us here, Miguel. You know, it's, it's not absolutely, too, absolutely. And yeah. there's that, that's where you can take your chance now to send your solidarity to the workers, to be honest. That's what we would do, Miguel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah of course. Go on, I, would, I would only ever blame the Tory government for that. <laughs> um, on a footballing point of view, I was actually in Manchester on Saturday. Rail strike it was actually all right. Nice tram from the airport over over down to Old Trafford as well. So um, where there's a will, there's a way. No need to be crossing any picket lines. Um, so there are plenty of footballing stories to discuss, uh, and they are surrounding uh, tournament football. So first and foremost, Ireland and the UK are set to be ratified unopposed as hosts of Euro 2028 by UEFA next Tuesday after Turkey withdrew from the bidding process. Turkey have teamed up with Italy to host the 2032 tournament following UEFA approval, meaning there's just a single bid now to host the 2028 um, edition. This is good news, David Snate, for Irish football and the legacies that it will leave behind. I know. Well, as soon as the kind of press releases start coming out, that's... From a journalist's point of view, you just kind of cringe a little bit. You know, it's great for the people who deliver it because it'd be great for their CVs and and their food, for them to be padding it. But when they start talking about that, that instantly makes you think, well, what's actually going to come of this? Like mm-hmm. I can remember covering the build up to Euro twenty twenty when it was supposed to be that Daily, the redevelopment Daily Mill Park would be one of the lasting legacies of of that build and stuff and, and Irish football. And obviously, it's now in a situation where it's only still. In the, in the process of actually happening you know mm. what I mean and obviously there was all the issue with, with Talca Park which you know, obviously you'll be aware of as well so there like this is this is one of those things where for people in terms of politics and for the people in the in the FAI who will be driving this again it just feels like something for them like that they can maybe possibly pad their CV with but to be people in the grassroots and people in the game and in Irish football of well actually what's the priority what's actually going to be of severe purpose here and they'll be scratching their heads maybe a little bit thinking well what is the point really mm. 
It is interesting. So, so a UEFA statement said the award of both tournaments still requires the approval of the executive committee at its meeting in Neon on Tuesday. Mm. The presentations at that meeting will be an important part of the process, which will take due consideration of the content of the bid submissions uh, before reaching a decision. So unless there is something catastrophically wrong with that bid, Miguel, this will uh, be ratified, I suppose. And, and just to confirm, so it's the Viva Stadium, the as-yet-to-be-built Casement Park in Belfast, uh, among 10 confirmed venues for the compliance. Irish and UK bid. The other eight stadia are Wembley, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the Etihad Stadium, Everton's new Bramley Moor Dock Stadium, Villa Park and St James's Park in England, Hamden Park in Scotland and the Cardiff National Stadium uh, in Wales. So a lot of talk here uh, in Ireland about Casement Park, but what's where are we with Everton's new Bramley Moor Dock Stadium, Miguel? Well, I suppose there's a lot to go there as well. I mean, and this is the thing, I mean, from speaking to people in the last few months about this, they've actually even though we've pretty much known for a long time it was basically a shoe and no one involved the bid is speaking with 100% certainty until it's confirmed and it does feel like this re- uh, reflects a lot of the elements of it where games will be played as well as how many teams will qualify uh, as regards case on Park I mean from the last conversations I've had given the uncertainty around that there is still a possibility that while we're talking about as a five nation uh, bid that Northern Ireland doesn't actually get to host any games because it won't be ready, and it could just be a base for training camps. Uh, and and similar, I mean, while while on the English side they've named their stadiums, there's still a long way to go. Um, I mean, but they, there is expectation that the Everton Stadium will be built by then. Uh, but I think one of the more interesting questions from all that then is how the qualification is actually sorted. Mm. I mean, if, if you don't actually get to stage a game, as might be the case in Northern Ireland, I think there's already the arguments being made that you probably shouldn't have access. But if they do get a stage game, um, again, because no one is speaking about this or, or has been speaking about it with complete certainty, there's been it's not like there's been kind of models put forward for what qualification could look like. There's kind of just been tentative suggestions made. And one of them has been some sort of five-team pre-tournament qualifying. Uh, and, and again, this is very speculative. But uh, yeah, a five-team pre-tournament qualifying to decide either two or three uh, automatic qualification places before those who finish in the bottom parts of it have to go in, have to go through the normal qualification. And, and like even that point you make there, Miguel, about speculative, like that's still the case. Even like Jonathan Hill, the CEO of of, of the FAI, when he was doing a media briefing with Mark Cannon, the director of football, just basically along the lines of the fallout from what happened with Vera Powell after that World Cup report, and then obviously after the the situation with with Stephen Kenny. But we were speaking to him about the bid and that, and even this is only a couple of weeks ago, he was kind of adamant that in terms of like fairness and just transparency and all the rest of it, that the five teams who are involved in this should actually be part of the qualification process. Now there could be a case where a couple of spots are left there for four teams but like even that point you were making there about whether or not Casement Park is actually part of this and this kind of just feeds in even just to this a whole element other, other, other element to it to what the benefit of this is for, for Irish football when you have like a stadium that is obviously a GAA stadium that has been derelict for nearly a decade mm. it's going to be supposedly getting redeveloped as part of this so what's the benefit to Irish football what's the benefit for for Irish soccer in, in that like there's no benefit there for that you know what I mean that's like it's it's a different sport that's going to be obviously getting the, the benefits that would come from obviously say the British government what's going to be happening with, with Northern Ireland and obviously being part of that bid but even with, with regards to the FAI's point of view it, even as a couple of weeks ago there was no nothing set in stone in terms of what's actually going to be happening here maybe now the fact that obviously again as was said there it was 
very fairly confident even before the um, the Turkish bid dropped out of this this this, this was where things mm. were going to be now obviously when obviously in Switzerland next week when, when things have when some of these nations have a chance to get together that's when maybe some of these issues will be getting ironed out Will we hear do you think next Tuesday like what realistically will we hear first and foremost that Ireland and UK will be hosting it but in terms yeah. of how many matches are going to be in each well, country or Well I think Jonathan, again Jonathan Hill's on record are saying there's going to be definitely six in the Aviva Stadium but we don't know what stage of the tournament or anything. No, like that, yeah, well, so. I think there could be a possibility again after double checking this, yeah. maybe in, in with the in with quarterfinals. But you've seen even with the with the Euros, obviously it was because of what happened with Cobb, where Wembley and because the stadiums that are in England naturally as well, just even with the like the size of the capacity on there as well, mm. the, like that they would uh, take precedence on that. But even again going back to we're talking about what would be the benefits, like even the fact that of there's no guarantee that Ireland would actually be the Republic of Ireland that is would be actually qualified and we're, or would get one of these slots to actually be involved you know yes it is it is quite bizarre um speaking of, of tournaments as well on a, a more global um stage miguel fifa has confirmed that the 2030 world cup will be held across six countries in three continents so spain portugal and morocco have been named as a co-host with the opening three matches taking place in uruguay argentina and paraguay to mark the world cup centenary as it will be 100 years since the inaugural tournament um is this surprising news or is this coming down the, the pipeline and it's kind of just out in the ether now, Miguel? Uh, it's surprising maybe in when it was announced. I think we expected this to go on a bit longer. Uh, but maybe that points to how kind of the many uh, political machinations to this made this, um, or basically kind of streamlined this process. I mean, it's going to make history and that's, it's the first World Cup across more than one continent, whatever about three, mm. uh, and I think that that again that, that reflects where we were because how this came about basically for a long time, a lot of people in football thought that Saudi Arabia, despite the many European right, or sorry, the many human rights questions, which would have been like Qatar but multiplied by thousands, um, that they would have been a shoe in for this because they were really going to push it as part of the Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030 uh, project. But what happened there was basically that Spain and Portugal outmaneuvered them by including the Morocco bid, because whereas it had been thought that Saudi Arabia would get a lot of votes from the Middle East and Africa, um, by including Morocco, Spain and Portugal split the vote. Now, while that didn't guarantee victory, uh, the Saudis didn't want to get into a situation that where they weren't basically, or where they might lose. Uh, so they essentially pulled out and have decided to switch for 2034 as, uh, instead. That basically left the most logical choice from an infrastructure point of view, which is Spain... Portugal, Morocco, or the one with the, mo- with the greatest emotional sway, which is the South American competition, as you mentioned, because of the centenary. Mm. So as happens in these sort of situations, a compromise was reached where the first three games of, the, of this World Cup will be played in South America and the rest in Spain, Portugal and Morocco. So that means the first game is going to be in Uruguay to recognize that's where 1930 was held and they won it. The second game will be in Argentina as runners-up in that competition in 1930, and also because they would have been the dominant country in their own 2030 bid. And then the third match will be played in Paraguay, who've probably done well out of this uh, because they're the um, the base of CONMEBOL, the South American Federation. 
So unlike Euro 2028 though, David, all six countries, home and hoes, they're going to be in the World yeah. Cup. Happy days. Well, that, and in fairness, even that's what a couple of us in the office were having this, well, <laughs> having this to be earlier, kind of doing the maths. Well, that make, would that mean then that when it comes to discussing this for Euro 2028, will it mean there will be three of, because obviously in terms of half the amount of numbers, it's going to be 48 teams in the, in the World Cup by then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it is again. It just shows you even with the with the World Cup, and obviously Miguel's kind of kind of fleshed it out there in terms of the political manoeuvres. But then also, like you you seen it at the going back to the World Cup uh, in Qatar, when obviously this was, and you see what's happening obviously in Saudi Arabia with with their league and and what's beginning to emerge there. But when you see obviously the fact that like uh, Mohammed bin Salman like being photographed beside Gianni Infantino that, yeah. in the opening game, wasn't it for that that World Cup in, in Qatar? You could kind of see obviously beginning the, the the mechanisms were already in place. For for, for what was coming down the line and in fairness as Miguel has kind of just laid out there a little bit like that compromise has been reached it's kind of like if this was kind of out of the blue a little bit you'd be thinking just this is absolutely incredible you know like six countries qualifying automatically it's going to be over the three different continents but just the nature of how somebody what's happened with the World Cup over the last while it just feels like like it's going to be crude to say but almost it's another element of like death by a thousand cuts in terms of actually just the enjoyment of how you can actually mm. take in these competitions and what they actually mean to you as if you're just looking at it as a, as a football fan and as a journalist covering it Well in a divided world FIFA and football are uniting David and that is according to FIFA President Gianni Infantino the FIFA Council representing the entire world of football unanimously agreed to uh, celebrate the centenary of the World Cup in this manner and it will have a unique but, global yeah. footprint but never mind carbon yeah, footprint but, but never mind yeah, I was going to say never mind carbon footprint but even after that if you, if you look at it it's because for even for the World Cup afterwards because we've just seen it even within the last hour that obviously Saudi Arabia now have basically made their bid for 2034 mm. league official that's why even with 2030 like you know, in terms of the countries who are involved, it's yeah, it's it's it feels a bit gimmicky and all the rest of it. But like, you know, I mean, that's that's part of football. You know, that's part of top level international football and and sport. It is that those kind of sense of gimmicks, and we were, we literally started this conversation talking about like the legacies that would be involved in bids and and having for tournaments. You know what I mean? But the why something like this kind of sits uh, a little bit uncomfortably is because it just it does feel as if it was done obviously a, a little bit as well primarily to kind of just open that door to just allow what's happening in Saudi Arabia to even like come to fruition even more. Yeah, is this a case Miguel of, of Saudi Arabia dictating things or that's perhaps a too strong a word to use well look I mean they're all not dictating but it, it does show how everything they're doing is pretty much shaping the game yeah. uh, and it's doing that right now so what that might look like in 5-10 years I think is almost uh, could be unimaginable I mean even I, I had a story yesterday so obviously the Champions League is going to take place tonight mm. an initial ambition of the Saudi Pro League was for their clubs to be in the Champions League because of its glamour. UEFA have completely locked that down. So what's going to happen instead is FIFA, in replacing the old Confederations Cup, which used to be a preparation for the normal for the the normal World Cup, they're going to have this new expanded Club World Cup the year before. So that'd be in USA in 2025. And the Saudi Pro League clubs are really got they want the next phase of the plan now is to make a massive statement at that, not just I suppose for their own glamour, but also to kind of boost that competition. Mm-hmm. So they have their own version of the Champions League. And if that is successful, and the, the way it happens with these sort of things, money money talks. I mean, previously, there, there have been reports about how Real Madrid say we're going to be offered 80 million to, to be in that competition because they realise they need the European big names. But that, like that alone will kind of completely distort the economy of football. Say if, kind of, even as an example, if clubs like Boca Juniors and River Plate are in the Club World Cup, 
uh, and it does have this success, well, that will completely wreck Argentinian football because they'll have so much more money than everyone else. And this 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 is going to um, this is going to be a huge issue of football going forward. And I would expect uh, the Saudi interests or even the public uh, investment fund to seek to buy more European clubs. I think we're only at the start of what is going to be a real new era in global football. And that's one of the issues with this. Is kind of it, some people have been able to kind of scoff almost at what's happening with the Saudi Pro League and some of the players who are who are going over there and saying, "Oh, you know, it's maybe lads who are at the end of their career, kind of washed up, not able to do it in the in the Premier League or in other leagues around Europe." And they kind of they kind of like them to to what happened in in China a few years back. But as Miguel says there, and if you, if you look at it in the landscape of what's happening in international football and what's happening now, obviously with the World Cup bid and stuff like, no, this is only the start. This is only like going to be the start. And when you see what's going to be happening with getting their their bigger profile games for, for their actual clubs that's only going to be intensifying then what happens in the European market and if you're looking at this purely from and there is and everyone knows about the trends if, when it comes to transfers and my god people just love transfers and everything that happens next time over the next few windows you're going to just see that real you know like just because just purely because of what that, the money that is there and because mm. of what the focus is because it's not just as I was saying earlier where it's a government doing it as like some sort of short term strategy in, in, in the in the immediate term there is a medium to long term plan here which you see and coming to fruition like if they're going to be hosting a World Cup which is let's be honest you can see the writing on the wall there already in a, mm. in, a, in, a, in 10 years time in that country there's absolutely no chance that any of this of what, what they're doing in terms of disrupting the mechanisms of the game is going to be slowing down in that time Absolutely, and we will be previewing the, the modern football derby uh, in due course as well between Newcastle and, and PSG. Uh, Miguel Delaney, I'm going to let you go. I know you have other media duties, uh, so thank you for taking the call, David. You're sticking around. Um, but I do want to develop the, the GAA angle uh, on all of this, and an Ulster GAA angle to be precise. And before we hear from uh, RTE uh, GAA's Damien Lawler uh, on that, here's what Minister for Sport Thomas Byrne had to say to Brian Dobson uh, on Radio 1 earlier on today on the UK government's commitment to Casewind Park as a Euro 2028 venue. We have a very good commitment from the British government, from the Secretary of State, that this will be done. Uh, and at the recent um, women's match between um, North and South, uh, I spoke to the General Secretary of the uh, Football Association in the North, and he was very confident uh, about Casewind Park. And I think that that's a really good news story as well, uh, that that's going to be a GEA stadium is going to be used uh, for football uh, in Northern Ireland. That's, that's a very, very confident thing to do. And it's a good sign about what is happening, I hope, uh, in Northern Ireland. And it has the backing of the British government. Government. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of work to do, but I'm confident that they will do it. And if funding is sought um, uh, f- from from uh, from the government here to, to assist with the redevelopment of Casement, will, will that be considered? Will it be forthcoming? Look, that hasn't been uh, brought up uh, with me at all. I mean, each each part of the bid is responsible for their own costs. Um, whatever costs we have in, in Dublin, we'll be responsible for. And that's the case uh, in Northern Ireland as well and in, in England, Wales and Scotland. So, so that issue hasn't arisen as part of the bid. Game on. Football. So that was... Thomas Burns speaking on Radio 1 to Brian Dobson a little earlier on uh, and we can now get RTGA journalist Damien Lawler's uh, thoughts to expand the conversation I suppose um, Damien so uh, Minister Byrne was speaking about the, the financial kind of side of things and there's mm. no confirmation whether or not the Irish government would, would put money into the redevelopment um, the GAA haven't commented on today's uh, news I suppose what's kind of the the standpoint at the moment from from the GEA? 
Well, I think from a general point of view, first of all, Shane, this is probably, you know, in all the years that I've been covering this story, this is certainly up there with the most significant development as regards the the, the, the future uh, state of Caseman Park. This is a, a seismic uh, development. Uh, you know, you're you're taking almost for granted now that the the UK Ireland bid will go through, and if it does go through, Caseman Park is simply one of ten stadiums uh, that is needed for that joint bid. Uh, the other stadium in Ireland being the Aviva. Mm. And the fact that it's not built yet is no... Okay, it might take a lot of people by surprise, but neither is the new evidence stadium, albeit redevelopment has started. But I think if you're ever looking for a rocket takeoff for Caseman Park, today's news was it, because uh, the stadium has not been used since 2013. We we all know it's fallen into a a state of disrepair. Um, It's the home of Antrim's football and hurling the Camogie teams. And now, uh, I mean, for so long, I've just been working on stories, you know, objections, planning processes, uh, lack of government, lack of devolution. Uh, and then most recently, um, one of the stakeholders, one of the key stakeholders, one of the tenders involved in the project had filed for liquidation. So you just wondered, uh, was this ever going to get off the ground? And I think like you're looking at maybe a 38,000 seat stadium. Uh, the, the original budget was 77 million, but it's well over that now. I mean, the, the the last estimate I had was maybe 110, but that'd be conservative with the current inflation and cost of cost of living expenses that are out there at the moment. Mm. Um, and of course, the, the the basic contention among the GEA or people in the GEA in the north would have been that uh, Raven Hill was was built, uh, Windsor Park was rebuilt, and you know. Caseman Park was, was, was promised to rebuild as well and it never happened and the UK and Northern Ireland governments would have looked after those projects. Uh, the GEA were going to make a donation obviously into that and um, I think this news today I, I see where Thomas Byrne maybe kind of took a stall on committing to Irish government funding but Taoiseach Leo Varadkar seems to suggest that they'll take a look at that issue mm. uh, but I would imagine now it, it's going to be a, a UK-led um fast investment and for so long Shane for so long the health of this stadium has suffered because there's been no sitting government um, and civil service couldn't get working because there was no uh, decision makers uh, present and everything was just held up and and this was after the frustrating point about this Shane was this was after a 30 30 week engagement process between the Caseman Park uh, kind of executive or the redevelopment spear group um, and the local residents. So in other words, they went out of their way to ease any local residents' objections that might take place. They, they actually went to preempt problems, they downsized the stadium, they did whatever was asked of them. 5,000 residents were involved at the time, I can recall, in that interaction process. And, you know, it got planning, it got approval from the residents largely, but then there was nobody to sign off on the checks. There was no, there was no government there. There was no local government, and the whole thing fell by the wayside. Hence, my belief that this is the most significant development for for Wins, for for Gaysman Park nearly since 2013. Yeah, no, it does seem to be confidence across the board. I, I see Antrim GA tweeted earlier today about the news, and uh, they said all we need to say about that is 
hashtag build casement, hashtag future generations, and they tagged Casement Park, the official GA and the Ulster GA as well. So just kind of t- to round it up, there would be fair to say confidence within Antrim GA, within Ulster GA, that this is going to be the, the seismic moment that kickstarts it and it will be built in time for the Euros and indeed before for Gaelic Games. Ah, before Shane, like according to my sources, they're hoping to um, play club games there in late 2025. Now, like, uh, you know, that that might be a bit ambitious on the outside, but that's their that's their plan anyway, despite the, the inflation rates and the, the, the construction costs. But at the end of the day now, um, you know, it's, it's a joint bid uh, between the, the two governments to get this over the line. And I think this has, has to happen now. I mean, the case in Park is needed. You might look at Windsor Park with only 18,000 capacity. Mm. And for a competition this size, they need at least 30,000. And Caseman Park will get you up to 38,000. You know, and Crow Park is not being considered for this. So, like, it, it, has, to, it has to happen now. And I think it's music to the ears of, you know, hard-working people like, like Stephen McGeehan, who have been trying to spearhead this project for, for many, many years now. Uh, they've been hit with protocol, red tape, uh, as I say, governments dissolving, uh, governments not coming back around the table. And like, I'm too long in the tooth now to say this is a certainty, but it's as near certain as I could maybe predict because I can't think of any, any other factor that's significant as today's news. Game on. Football. So interesting times ahead. David Snade is still in studio and we're going to uh, continue our football chat after the break. Just to update you on the Champions League matches that are ongoing at the moment. Approaching half-time in Spain and Atletico Madrid are losing 2-1 at home to Feyenoord and Royal Antwerp are leading Shakhtar Donetsk 2-0 uh, at home in Group H. Celtic, of course, the other match in Atletico's group in uh, Group E. They play Lazio at 8pm uh, this evening. OK, short break and then we're going to continue Football with David Snade. Game on. Football. Now we're continuing our football chat. Shane Dawson here with you, and I'm joined by the 42.e's, uh, David Snade. Uh, we will be chatting Champions League. Um, we've covered the tournaments, David. There's a lot of news on today, a lot of news on today. Um, we're going to listen to some Jurgen Klopp audio. He was uh, reacting to uh, the uh, small issues that occurred over the weekend. The audio didn't change it at all um, because I was not really interested in that why things happened because I knew um, I saw the outcome, I saw a goal which we scored and um, it didn't count so I was now not waiting for the audio and then sitting there and, and, and hoping I find out how it could happen or whatever so what I want to say is it's really important that we as big as football is, that we trust, and important as football is for us at least, um, that we really deal with it in a, in a proper way. So, and I mean that all of the people involved, on-field ref, linesman, um, fourth official, and especially now in this case we are, they didn't do that on purpose. So, and we, we should not forget that. Yes, it was a mistake, an obvious mistake, and I think there would have been solutions for it afterwards if not I can say immediately even probably some people don't want me that to say but as a not as the manager of Liverpool so much more as a, a football person I think the, the only the, the outcome should be a replay that's how it is probably will not happen the argument against that will probably be if we open that gate, then everybody will ask for it. I think the situation is that unprecedented that it uh, um, 
didn't have before in that moment. And we all use, I'm 56 years old I'm, and I'm since 50 years in football and I'm absolutely used. I don't deal over it always well with it, but I'm used to wrong decisions, difficult decisions, blah, 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 all these kind of things. But something like that, as far as I can remember, never happened. And that's why I think a replay would be the right thing. And against the argument would be if it would happen again, I think a replay would be the right thing to do. Or the ref has the opportunity to bring both coaches together and say, sorry, we, we made a mistake. But we can sort it. Let Liverpool score a goal and we start from there. In a specific game, it was what makes it a bit more special than obviously is uh, that we conceded two minutes after we scored a, a, a regular goal. Um, and how all things depend on each other. If we would have, if the goal would have counted, we would have started the game. The game would have started in the center of the game pitch and not where it started, and all these kind of things. It would have been different. So that's one thing. And. Um, yeah, that's my view on it, and it's, I'm, I'm not angry with anybody of them or whatever, not at all. And I really think it should. It's not only the respect, but the only thing for human beings in general that you should not go for them, really. It's not allowed to go for them in no way. Um, they made a mistake, and they got Dave, Dave felt horrible that night, I'm 100% sure. Um, and that's enough for me. So nobody needs further punishment or whatever. And, and I think we should just should discuss it on a completely normal basis without emotions. And I'm, I have no, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm, I could discuss it, but it's not my job. I'm here to prepare a game, a super important and super difficult game against Union Saint Girard, and um, that's um, much more important. But because I understand that you asked the question and you want to have answers for that. What I thought, what made this day really difficult for us, is all the other decisions. Because there's another thing, we talk about the process now of, of VAR, and that's one, how they talk to each other. But in this game, there was another situation when um, Curtis Jones got a red card, and I stick to the opinion, there's not a red card. The ref got called to the screen and saw for the first three seconds a frozen picture. And I would give him the immediate red card for that picture. Then you see the re he sees the replay in slow motion. And I would have given the red card for the slow motion. But in real time, it's not a red card. I feel Liverpool have meticulously planned and scripted their statements and been very cordial about it. And Jurgen Klopp is just Leroy Jenkins did. He's just gone straight <laughs> in and just been like, Boom, there you go. What you make of it all? <laughs> Yeah, no, like it's a strange one because even you, you, it's such a bad mistake, first of all. And yeah. even the statement that came out in terms of the fact that the audio wasn't released, obviously, until wasn't it yesterday when, mm. it, when, it, when it came out. But even when Jurgen Klopp is saying that the, the audio it doesn't make a difference and stuff, but to be honest, it kind of just shows you like it, they realise how quickly they've made the mistake and just how basic a mistake it is. Mm. And the, But the thing is, this is the issue on, on a whole of, of the issue with VAR. Like in terms of and it's like, oh my God, even just got, even just like the wheels <laughs> torn in my head having this conversation again, because it just feels as if it's just so obvious. Is that like the whole point of this was brought in because this sort of stuff sh shouldn't happen. But this has been happening because you still have people 
at the heart of it, making like making these human errors mm. in charge of te- the technology. Like we saw at the start at the start of this year last season when Lee Mason ended up leaving his position with the PGMOL because of the mistake he made when he was the VAR when he forgot to draw the lines when mm. it, um, Arsenal played Brentford and he missed an, a clear offside and that was sorry, for Brentford that it was an equalising goal against Arsenal. To bear in mind at that stage of the season Arsenal were going for the league title. Do you know what I mean as well? Mm. So like and he 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 ended up losing his, his job on the back of it. Do you know what I mean? So like there, there can be consequences there. Like this issue now of having a replay, you can still see, obviously, it's something that's affecting Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. You can see why, because he ended up losing. Well, the when end he up speaks about it for there. three minutes and then he said, well, you know, I'm not angry. You know, know. otherwise I talk about it. I'm only talking because you asked. But I think part of, it, part of maybe the anger is probably suppressed by so much of what happens with, with Aaron, how it's used. Like he kind of references himself there about the processes they're talking about with how, because there's so much that people will have an, an issue with. And some of it I would agree with in the sense of, you know, how referees would see certain incidences slowing down or just a still image. But at the same time, like that Curtis Jones red card, like that's still usually debatable f- because, like, well, well, personally, it, I would say it's a red card. But the air was, was used in, in the wrong manner but because they showed him the still. Yeah, but they're saying that in the wrong manner. But see, that's why this is where the confusion comes in because then if you listen to actually officials and just doing it over the, over the course of the last couple of days, the reason why. The, the reason why they do that is to show the point of contact and why the decision should be changed. Mm. So that's that's what their what their process is, and that's what Jurgen Klopp is talking about here about why why it's incorrect is that you should just show the tackle and then bit by bit if you need to slow it down. But even when you see that tackle, and this just, again this just shows you the nature of these debates because we start we start off talking about a goal, the most basic thing that should have been ha- happening, and then we it comes wrapped around into this conversation because so much happens in the game that can still actually be debatable on the point of the actual goal and and the mistake, like. Like there was so much going around conspiracy theories and all the rest of it about why, how this happened and all the rest until you actually listen to the audio and you see how quickly they realise their mistake and the fact that because the game has restarted and the basic mistake of they think that the on-field decision was actually to mm. give it as a goal when in fact it was to give it as an offside like that just seems like so obvious and so and so simple that they should not have got that wrong and that's why they've paid the price as well because obviously those officials aren't going to be involved next weekend and they've already, other officials have already had greater consequences as mm. I laid out but it, it just it feeds into the whole issue about, about why we're having these debates about, about VAR like you say for example with, with even with the Champions League or in, in Serie A say for, for offsides and stuff it's the semi-automated we've seen we're talking about the World Cup earlier the yeah. World Cup it's semi-automated where it's not actually in the in the the role of a of a of a actual referee, yeah, to of be, a human to, of draw, a human the to draw the line, yeah. it's, it's already sorted for them and it's clear cut. That mistake doesn't happen then, yeah. Do you know, so this is where, and they they roll in the replays as well in the Champions League. I was watching Champions League last night, and one of the replays, albeit a couple of minutes later, is showing the line and the yeah. the imaginary wall, and and you see it. So. Um, it will drag on. Uh, finally, just short answer here. That's not going to be replay. No, no, that's yeah. Right answer. <laughs> um, right. Speaking of um, Champions League, uh, we were keeping you up to date uh, with the scores um, of the matches ongoing at the moment. It's halftime. Royal Antwerp still two 0 up against Shakhtar Donetsk. However, Atletico Madrid have equalised in the 49th minute of the first half. Anton Griezmann. So it's two two in Group E. 
Um, so as it stands, Feyenoord are still top of that group on four points, Atletico on two points, Lazio on one, Celtic on none, and Celtic host Lazio uh, this evening at 8pm. The reason I'm starting with uh, Celtic and Lazio is because um, Stephen Kenny is going to be at that match uh, looking yeah. at Liam Scales because news today, John Egan is out of the Ireland's upcoming Euro qualifiers against Greece uh, and Gibraltar. Uh, Calamo Dauda is also definitely unavailable. Seamus Coleman, of course, is sidelined. Andrew Obama-Daly struggling to get minutes at Forest. So could be a golden opportunity for Liam Scales. Yeah, like it wasn't so long ago, obviously, when he made that move from from Shamrock Rovers over to Celtic, and he was in the mix. He was in, he was in, in for a, definitely in for a training squad, and he was kind of as described. He got left out with that, but it was like basically described Stephen Kenny as the as the next man in, and mm. so that's only a couple of years ago. And you're kind of thinking, right, he's going to kick on now, and he could be one of them, especially because left sided centre back who can also play as as a wing back as well. But even like the just. It just shows you just the, just the nature of how your career can kind of like turn even at, at Celtic. You know, he was on loan at Aberdeen for, for last season. He's not really getting a sniff. Obviously, Ange Postacoglu lives his job. Brendan Rodgers comes back in for the season. There's a few injuries, a good few, a good few injuries. Mm. And he gets an opportunity. He ends up being man of the match in the in the All-Firm Derby there uh, only a few weeks ago. Or could have been, uh, would have been maybe back in the on, end of August. Um, so early September, yeah. and recently, all, yeah, yeah, and, and all of them shined in a, in a big match. Yeah, yeah. A big match, but then, but then obviously stay, stays in the team. And like, I, I, let's be honest, like with Brendan Rodgers in the club at Celtic, he kind of it wasn't one or down. He had to win him over. Do you mm. know what I mean? And you're only going to do that, I suppose, by just performing every single day and training and all the rest of it. But then also delivering, delivering in matches. And then yes, yeah, so Stephen Kenny be over there. This even he he's going to be in the squad. You would think then if he's if he's gone over to ha, to have a look at him. And then obviously the fact that just another be a big big injury blow in terms of a leader in the in the defense. With John Egan gonna gonna be out, like he obviously came into the last the last international window, obviously for the for the game with the with the Netherlands as well, and, and for France away, and he was kind of struggling with an injury then at the time as well. Was able to to play through, and then came back in with Sheffield United and, and has picked up another picked up another knock. But yeah, no, we, we, I suppose like with William Scales, it's just that that example of someone where you kind of have that opportunity back at a, at a club where you might have been out of favour and. Your internet. He was well down the well down the kind of prospects internationally was, and now he has his resurgence, and he just has to try and stay fit and, and stay in form. And you would think he's going to play a part in terms of the next camp. Absolutely, we'll be reviewing all of tonight's Champions League uh, tomorrow, including the the Gulf State Derby. Um, but David, we have one minute left, and just to wrap up our show uh, on a review of last night, Manchester United. I keep yeah. asking this question: just how bad can it get? The the worst thing they could do is is sack Ericsson Hag. Like that's uh, no. Uh, well, you never like. You know the process. Trust the process, David. Yeah, I, this is just where United are at the time. Mm. At the time, I was actually only checking this the other day. Remember, where obviously when before they appointed Alex Ferguson back in nineteen eighty six, they had like five permanent managers between Matt Busby leaving and Alex Ferguson. Like they're already on that number again in a much shorter period of time since Ferguson now was left in the last decade. And but this just shows you where 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 United are at in terms of as a squad. They're just so fragile. They're so mm. weak. But then you're saying there about the worst thing he can do is sack Ten Hag. I would agree in the sense that, like, it's not fully his squad, but like his hamper, his imprints are still all all over this as well. Mm. He has been in the job for a year. Like last year, like a lot of people would say it was a success. They won a trophy, they qualified for the Champions League, but they still looked so vulnerable in the away games. Like the amount of times they were absolutely annihilated in big games away from home. We've seen mm. it obviously in the in the Liverpool game when it's the one that that famous game stands out to seven 0 But like. And then this year, it's just been it's just been carried on. Like, they just seem so so vulnerable. And like the manager is a part of that in terms of how he sets them up. The defenders, I know there's like a raft of injuries, but just 
guy in management and understanding in certain situations as well. Like everyone is is culpable at the moment, and mm. yeah, just it's just another part of the the kind of the crisis that um, is happening at Man United. I think back in the day it would have been like they lost two games, like you see on the back pages of the newspapers, a badge would be cracked and all the rest of it. Whereas <laughs> like now it's just like on permanent there, having it in the corner because that's just that's just where United are at at the yeah. moment, you know. Well, as I said, it wasn't pretty on last Saturday in Manchester. But, but at least we were able to get the tram for the match. This is true, yeah. And us, it, take it, our small mercy, it wasn't you know? the messiest event. I think the Conservative uh, Conference as well was on Manchester as well, so the whole city was shut down. So <laughs> great day for Manchester. Uh, David Snade, thank you very much no, for no popping in. We're going to be returning to GA News with Damien Lawler in a few moments', moments time. Stick with us in Game On 2FM. Game On. GAA. Now, of course, we heard from Damien Lawler a little earlier on in the show on the Caseman Park news uh, in relation to the Euro 2028 bid. But we'll return to Damien now for our Wednesday Gaelic Games uh, slot. And Damien Lawler, there has been plenty of movement in the world of Gaelic Games and Gaelic football in particular. Um, I suppose, where shall we start? We should start in Ulster, considering that's where we, we left our conversation. Um, come here, there's been a narrative bandied about now that outsiders don't fit in in certain counties and that leads me to my question to you how will Mickey Hart be received in Derry? I think he'll be received well Shane I think you're looking at uh, is he one of the most successful managers that the GEA has ever seen Uh, a guy with a proven track record uh, a proven ability to take teams to nurture them and to deliver success be it at underage or more recent date senior and he's, he's done the same with Loud as well. It was a massive, massive coup for Loud when they got him a couple of years ago. The nature of his departure may not have gone down all that well. Um, you know, I think he was fairly much in situ for next year, from what I'm led to believe, and Loud are very disappointed about that. Um, a Tyrone man going to Derry, that's not simple. There's no point in saying otherwise. They're both very separate indigenous communities in terms of Gaelic football. Uh, you know, Tyrone have had much the better over the last couple of decades in terms of results, but you can see the Derry revival in recent times, mm. and you can see their evolution from a, a kind of a hard to break down team into a counter attacking team into a, a kind of a really, really impressive attacking team this year. So, what the, the question I'd be asking is, will Mickey Hart be the man to get them over the line? Um, you know, they will argue they could have beaten Kerry this year. Um, Mickey would 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 rebel against this tag that he has defensive teams I think in the Leinster final last year Louth went out and had a right crack against Dublin they were blown wide open but they went and had a crack for all for all the talk about his Tyrone teams by the time he was finishing up they, they were nearly averaging 9 to 11 players scoring uh, per, per Tyrone team now that's impressive so the question now is there was sharpness in that Derry attack there was attempt there was focus they were good in the transition there would be no question about uh, Hart's defensive structure I just hope now they'll play with that little abandon that you're going to need to win an All-Ireland title because that's where they're at but you, you've got to bring it right down to brass tacks again getting out Ulster will be a minefield for any of the counties involved so he, yeah he's putting a lot on the line um, you know there's obviously certain high profile people have spoken out against it mm. but like Derry want to win an All-Ireland there are certain players coming near the end of the road Mickey Hartson a guy who knows how to get across the line and he's had to deal with all sorts of adversity not just as, 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 a, as a man, but as a manager. And I think that know-how would be serious. Like the other names that would have cropped up would have been Maliki or Work, uh, for, for instance. And maybe Maliki, maybe he wasn't available. I don't know, but Mickey Hart is the man in situ. And I think he's a good man to have. He knows how to win. 
Absolutely. Um, sticking with Ulster, because you mentioned how difficult Ulster is going to be, never mind yeah. getting an All-Ireland title. A couple of shrewd moves on, on backroom teams. So Conlet Gilligan to Armagh, linking up with uh, Kieran McGinney as manager yeah. and Kieran Donnie's in the backroom team. And uh, Derry's Ulster Championship winning manager, Kieran Mina, to the down backroom team. Are, are they oh. both good, positive moves? Yeah, they really are. I'd be really impressed with both of those guys. And uh, like I would have thought that maybe Kieran Mina might have been might have been in the frame for the loud job and I thought maybe he might have been the man to go looking for uh, but Ger Brennan's a really good appointment there as well but in terms of Kieran Mina like he really steadied that ship when he took over as interim Derry manager this year he has a really really good grounding in the game he's been involved in that Derry squad for the last few years the own background of course is Tyrone Steeps and Tyrone football I think he'll do a really good job the word had got out earlier in the season that uh, if, if he wasn't staying on in Derry that Conor Laverty would be looking after him now Laverty's a student of the game and I think that the fact that he's going for Mina and you've got Marty Clark there and you've got Mickey Donnelly there that's a really really good backroom team down really really impressed this year except in the Talisman Cup final they really let themselves down I think that day and I think Kieran Mina is just a great great influence to have around the place and I think he'll have his matchups and his tactics and everything will be, will be 100% right it's a great move as regards Gilligan going to Armagh it's another great move. Like, Conor Gilligan is absolutely in love with the game of Gaelic football. He, he loves his style, structures, loves his tactics, loves his systems. He's heavily involved at club level. Really good media analyst as well. So I'd be sorry to see him go from that point of view. He could be a huge shove on for him, and it's already becoming the most competitive province yet again. And you know what? You have to ask the question, Shane, if you are in Ulster County, they're going to go hammer and tongs for six weeks and they're going to get back to square one then with everybody else again. At some <laughs> stage along the line, they may ask the question, is it worth going all out for an Ulster title? And so far, the answer has been yes for those counties. But the way the season is so compacted, mm. I'm not sure that that'll be the same for much longer. Absolutely. You mentioned he's a good uh, media analyst. Game on's loss is Armagh's gain with, with, yeah. <laughs> with, with Conor yeah, Gilligan. Yeah, for sure. Um, you did mention Jer Brennan. Um, there, Damien. So obviously yeah. he's the new loud manager. He has with him James McCartan and Niall Moyna actually as, as selectors, two really, really shrewd operators. Um, yeah. So he was coach under Niall Carew at, at Carlo. He's coached uh, Bray Emmett and I think he's in his second season um, as manager of Kildare Club Murfield. So how big of a step up is this going to be going into, into county management? Yeah, it's a big step up, but I think Jerry's been looking to get into that space for, for some time now. And I think he's been, you know, he's well equipped to, to go and do it as well, Shane. Mm. Um, you know, he, he's in Moorfield. Uh, he's a two time All Ireland winner. He, he knows how to set up a defence from his own playing days. He's the, you know, the GEA, the main GEA figure at UCD. Um, so he's learned a lot in terms of management. He's bringing David White with him as well. Um, you know, the, the backroom team is fairly impressive. The, the, the midfield transition is a new position again, uh, Shane, that I. Mm. Uh, you know, but then again, the sport is evolving all the time. So I say fair play. Uh, I think it'd be a good steady hand. So like, Lau is so, sore enough to lose heart, but they have a bit of profile here. They have Niall Miner, well-known figure, James McCartan, good forwards coach, Ger Brennan, well-known as well. Probably young manager making a step up. So it is a big test for him. Staying in Division Two should be the target. It really should. That'd be tough enough. It'd be some Division Two next year. But look, this Gerard would have been heavily linked with Leash as well, you know. So like, it's a, it's a, it's only a matter of time before, and he was heavily linked with Monaghan too, and came close enough, I believe. Mm. So it was only a matter of time before somebody stepped in for him. He gets a chance now with a high-profile team with lots of work done with them, um, and he wanted to put his own stamp on it as well. So interesting time, Shane. 
given how much buzz there is around backroom teams, so, so you mentioned transitional coach. Is, is this the new buzzword? Because like at one stage it was S&Cs and then it was the sports psychologists and now David White is a transitional coach. Is, is this the new thing we're going to see in the game? Probably a year old at this stage yeah. uh, in, in, in terms of out there on the actual field. And I think Barry would have been the greatest example of that. So I, I guess what it means is you want to set up your defence to make sure that your foundation is good and that you're, you're well-structured at the back. However, we've discovered in the last couple of years that a, a compact defence will only get you so far. You're still going to need to shoot maybe in the region of 16, 17 points onwards to win games and you must be able to get up the field and create those chances and get numbers as well. So you're right, Shane. Mm. The field conditioning, all those levels have gone up through the roof in recent years and now... I think that they try to figure out how best to get you up there. And that's where the transition coach comes in. And that's where the switch from defence to midfield to attack is so important in the modern game. And it's good news for us, Shane, because it means that a lot of the coaches now have copped on to the fact that, yeah, defence will get you so far, but you need a potent attack and you must somehow get your players and the ball up there to create the opportunities and put the ball over the bar. Because that's what wins in. Absolutely. Um, if we turn to hurling, Damien, before I let you go, uh, two-time Munster Championship winner Alan Cadigan uh, has retired from inter-county hurling. He still yeah. will um, hurl at club level. Only 30 years of age. Is, is that yeah. a bit of a surprise, given the fact he is only 30? Look, I mean, there's a, there's a production line of talent coming off the, 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 the Cork uh, kind of conveyor belt at the moment. But at the same time, own, own, Alan Cadigan is a guy, three-time All-Star nominee, uh, played with injuries in recent years, Jane, and that may have been a factor in his decision because he's, he's been there nearly since 2013, a 10-year career, um, le- lightning fast, a lethal forward in his day. Um, and I'm just wondering now, like, um, maybe, you know, he definitely started in for Cork and started as recently as, as this year, obviously, but, but maybe he just has reassessed his, his life outside of the game. Maybe he wants to spend a bit of time with his club, but certainly he's made a huge innings. He had no luck whatsoever with injuries. That's the key thing. And I think that maybe that might, I can't speak for Alan, but that might have been a key part in his decision as well, Shane. Mm, who knows? You might see him back as a, a backroom team member um, with Cork in the near future. Finally, Damien, the mo- probably the most least surprising management news, John Kiley has been given the green light for an eighth season with the Limerick Hurlers. <laughs> is, is this just a case of John Kiley will be Limerick manager for as long as John Kiley wants to? That, that's it. That's it. Same way with Brian Cody. Like as long as John is enjoying that, and as long as he has time to devote to that position, and as long as Paul Kinnerk is beside him, and all the right guys are beside him, the team is going nowhere. Let's be honest about Shane. They're hot favourites to win five in a row, and the way they're playing, can anybody come near them? Possibly Kilkenny. Uh, you know, I'd like to see Cork making shapes now at this stage, but the physicality, the movement, the first touch, the style, the structure, the space. There's nobody near them at the moment and you'd be crazy to be leaving that job if you didn't have to. If you're enjoying it and you still like going in training in the evening time, they, they appear to have a great bond, Shane. So, John Coyley, that job is his for as long as he wants it. Absolutely. Okay, on that note, Damien Lawler, thanks very much for taking the call. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, Shane. Game on. GAA. Now, just wrapping up some more Gaelic news. Armagh will actually have to plan without... Um, Jarley Oak Burns next season <clears throat> excuse me because uh, the player is taking a year out from inter-county football so certainly a blow to Kieran McGinney's um, side and Kilkenny Camogie have confirmed their new manager Peter Chapclare uh, will be the manager of the Kilkenny Senior Camogie team for the 2024 season the two-time All-Ireland winner with Kilkenny will take up the role having previously managed Carlo 
to a league title last year. So it will be an initial one-year term and perhaps uh, that will be extended. Um, Good news for Stephen Kenny in Celtic because Liam Scales is starting. Mikey Johnson is on the bench. Uh, Cahill Herfnan actually played the full 90 uh, in Newcastle's youth Champions League match against PSG earlier as well. So good to see Irish players getting um, some game time. Sinead, that is all we have time for. Unfortunately, we've ran out of road. We won't hear from Paul O'Connell. There's a full uh, quotes are up on the RT Sport website and we'll continue our build-up to Ireland-Scotland tomorrow with Bernard Jackman. And on Friday, Mike Prendergast will be joining us. So lots to look forward to. Uh, big thanks to Laurie Davison, Ronan Lollop for working on this evening's show. Big thanks to you for listening. Better De Silva is up next, so stay tuned to 2FM. But for now, from all of the Game On team, it is. Bye-bye.